Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books and subsequently each of our careers went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a Big Five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. Welcome to the Publishing Rodeo, the best worst podcast in the world. We have with us Wes Chu, author of uh, those are some uh, very impressive stretches. Wes, let's roll this party. Author of most recently the <laughs> most recently the Art of Prophecy. And Wes, I'll hand it to you to give your own intro and maybe give us an overview of your publishing journey. And then we've got some specific questions because we've done at least a little bit of homework and we have some, even have some viewer questions, I guess, listener questions, because we don't do YouTube that have been submitted ahead of time. So yeah, give us the uh, condensed version of who you are and what you've done. Hey guys, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Wesley Chu. I am the author of, I think I'm at 13 books now. So I debuted in 2013 with The Lives of Tao with a small press called Angry Robot Books. And since then, I have written for Tor. I've written for uh, Saga. And I'm now currently with Delray Books. So it's, I've had the full spectrum of... And I do have a little bit of uh, self-pub stuff. So I've kind of done a little bit of everything. And um, I, I've seen... Contra I've prob I think I've signed about six or seven contracts now okay. since I've started out. So... Sorry. And they all started, they started in four figures and the um, most recent one is in the six figure range. I remember when your book came, well, I remember seeing it actually, because I submitted to an Angry Robot one in like 2016, one of their open windows. And I think one of their, their kind of poster child, you know, it's like, oh, here's someone we picked from the slush, Lives of Tao, Wesley Chu. So I will say this: the lives of Tao was honestly it was, it was a, any robot was a great place to start, and as a small press, you know it was a, a small press, so the advances weren't big, their budget was limited, but they were punching above their weight. They had great distribution, and honestly, it was a great place to start uh, when you when you're a debut author. Obviously, you don't get the big you know the, the big contract. I think the lives of Tao advanced about four thousand dollars, you know, and, and and even worse the. The royalty rate was about five oh, percent. Okay. So, but um, but saying that, you know, it came out mass market, which means it came out at a lower price point for physical, and you know, the book earned out in about a week. Holy shit, dude! Well done. And I, since th and since you know, since then, I think um, it sold probably you know upwards closer to six figures, uh, six figures of uh, I'm sorry, hundred hundred thousand copies okay. now. I actually don't know. I stopped I stopped yeah. keeping track after a few years, but uh, it was climbing towards that that number. So, that's really really decent yeah i mean and i mean so being that you know it, it was a, a slush pile book a, a small upfront contract and a, and a small publisher is there anything that you noticed specifically besides the good distribution and the good price point for a, a debut author in physical is there anything that really worked or was it just, you know, happenstance that you found the right crowd of, of people who really connected with your books or uh, what happened there? Look, man, I'll, I'll be honest. You know, I had my 10 year anniversary like, earlier uh, this year and yeah. I still don't know what sells books. I'm like, <laughs> you, you want you want me to be honest? Like, I don't know why that book kind of blew up. I actually didn't think it would blow up at the time. And one of the first lessons I, I learned in publishing was uh, when I first got the cover for The Lives of Tao, it was this really bright yellow book with like mm. black silhouettes. And I absolutely hated it. I, like, you know, your, your debut author, I wanted yep. art. I wanted like, you know, all those beautiful pictures that I saw on the cover. So I, I just hated it. And then um, it's what worked. It, uh, 
I mean, it goes to show I am not a subject matter expert on like, you yeah. know, marketing and cover design. So it was one of my first lessons was like, there are a lot of things that that go into the production of a book that I just wasn't aware of. And, you know, ego and what, you know, personal dreams aside, what they did was brilliant and much better for the book than I could have ever you know come up with. So that might've been one of the factors is it was a very original cover that just mm. kind of popped out on the bookshelf in, in, a, in a sea of like, yeah. you know, pretty pictures. So I was just, this is something we ask a lot of people. What, what did you know about the industry when you went in? Cause you, you came in from what banking, I think, which is a very business oriented career. And then here's publishing. So that's the funny thing is I was kind of a dummy back then and I didn't do any research. Like for some reason, I, mean, I came from an IT background, but for some reason I've never bothered to look online for like resources you know i eventually stumbled upon absolute rights subform that's kind of like been a great resource for me in terms of like querying in case in terms of like learning about like parts of the industry you know le learning about genre learning about word counts so but that was really the only research i did um i wrote the book and i wrote the a low fantasy in 2005, which is kind of like fantasy has always been my dream. And then, you know, I wrote my first book. It's 180,000 words. It was a terrible book. And then in many ways, it was the most important book I ever wrote, uh, I've ever written because I really made all my mistakes there. So after a year of the book not going anywhere, I trumped it, <laughs> got drunk for a week, and then like then wrote the next book, which became The Lives of Tao. And that was in 2007. Then, then I took a two-year hiatus after... Uh, I wrote the book because I was raiding World of Warcraft, <laughs> as you do. You know, I was a, I was a raid leader in the number one guild on my server. We we were we were we were big time back then. Yeah, yeah that was that a big time sink. I will say this: you will not have any better experience becoming a middle manager than running guild of 150 kids, kids and old people. Like an entire spectrum of people who who are all after like fat loops. And, I, and I, I, as the recruiting officer, was the gatekeeper. So I learned so much, like, man, managerial skills doing that. I think it paid for it, but, you know, whatever. But, yeah, so, a, so after, I, you know, my World of Warcraft days, I kind of, like, brushed, you know, the Angry Robot open submission of 2012. So they had that open submission. I found out through Absolute Right. And for that one month in April, anyone can submit to them. So I submitted the lives of Tao. And at the end of the day, they had they had 955 submissions. Out of those 955, I think they asked for uh, partials from 65, fulls from 25 or 24. And then out of those, five people got deals. And I was one of those five. That's amazing. So it's kind of like publishing through Thunder <laughs> at, at risk of soliciting comments that are not quite kind, how did the other four do from that batch of five? I heard from someone else many, many years later, and I'm not sure if it's true, but it did came from an ex-employee of Angry Robot that throughout their entire run up to like 2017 or 2018, only two of their books wow. were profitable. And I was one of the two. It's the other one, Jeanette Ng's books. <laughs> um, no, I'm not sure. I, no, I'm not sure if that number was accurate because I know... Um, Actually, I don't think it was. I think it might have been Ramez Nam, and there was there were a few others, but um, I'm I'm not sure how accurate that number is, but it's basically one of those. You know, that's how publishing is. It's, it's there's there's tent poles, and then there's a lot of gambles, and most of the gambles don't pay out. Yeah. So moving on from Angry Robot, how then did you get an agent after that point, and how did you branch out from there? Well, now when when Angry Robot first offered me the contract, the first thing I did was I went to my you know top few agents with the contract in hand. And then that's how I got my current agent, Russ Galen. And so, I mean, e e even then, even with like me saying, let me give you money, he, you know, he gave me like a little interview, like talked to me for like two hours because, you know, a, a good agent wants to kind of like walk that journey with you. It's, it's a really, it's yeah. a long-term relationship. So if they just want to negotiate that first contract for you, that's, that's not what an agent should be doing. You know, and you know, I've been with Russ for, for 10 years now, and so it's, it's been a really good relationship. So that's probably one of the better ways to get an agent. You know, obviously, slush pile is hard, but if you have a contract in hand, you automatically get bumped up to their reading pile. <laughs> you know, Russ has Dana Gabaldon yeah. and, and, uh, and the Crawdads book, so I'm more like a hobby for him. Oh, he's got crawdads. Holy shit. Sorry. <clears throat> he's got crawdads, man. He's got crawdads money. God. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, those of us who sign small deals are 
probably a lot more work for our agents than we're worth. I, I'm very conscious oh. of that when I'm. Yeah, absolutely. So you're keeping them on their toes. Go on. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'm a, in a in a rare fit of positivity for me on this show. I am a huge fan of my agent Matt Bialer. Couldn't be happier with him. Just an amazing person. If you're listening, um, Matt, there, there, there's your shout out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll see if he gets through to episode, whatever this is. It looks like, you know, just, just going through your, your list of books, not only are you incredibly prolific, which I want to talk about in a minute, but it looks like your book with Tor, so Time Salvager, came out just six months after the third Tau book came out from Angry Robot. So Sunny and I obviously were in a little bit different uh, situation. She's in a very good situation. I'm in a uh, tenuous situation. But we're both in our first contracts, almost to the point where we're looking to strategize on our next. How did you go from that first to that second? What was your strategy? You know, How did you end up with Tor instead of Angry Robot? Uh, can you walk us through that? So... The thing about Angry Robot is, I mean, my initial contract is for a two-book deal. And by the time the first book came out, you know, the second book was already in the can. And because they're small press, small press have the ability to be a little bit, a bit more nimble. So they basically pushed out book two towards the end of that year. And around early 2014, January 2014, I had, I had just gotten laid off by, by my company, by Bank of America. And I had a job offer the next day from from Chase. That's kind of kind of at that moment where I kind of sat down and, and went, you know, my writing career is doing well, but even though I wasn't making a lot of money, but it shows that maybe I have some of the chops it takes to actually make a career out of it. So I made I made a deal with my wife, and she was like, "Look, you're gonna have two years to make something of yourself, or you're getting a job." So I wrote two books a year for like three four years because I really just hated working and. That 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 was my motivation. Was I really hated my job? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> what exactly did you do? Just out of curiosity, because I really hated my job as well. So I was a computer science major. I was an internet yeah. architect in a large financial cool. institutions, and I was just you know I was just working. I mean, the kind of technology I worked at was good for like insurance, financial institutions, mm-hmm. banks. It just like it wasn't even cool yep. technology. It was more like middleware, you know, tedious stuff. So, <laughs> and honestly, I, and and I'll be honest, I I sucked at it. I I was not good at, at being a software engineer. I was not good at being at IT. So in a way, uh, I finally uh, thank God I found publishing uh-huh. because because I am now unemployable. <laughs> I I, I have I have nothing to fall back on except for my ass if if, no publishing ever fails. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, desperation uh, makes for good motivation. Desperation, desperation was my motivation. So uh, I think what happened was after the two book deal, Angry Robot wanted to finish the the trilogy. Um, It was a very successful series for them. So you know, I made we made we negotiated getting my foreign rights back from them as part of the third book. And I immediately was looking to you know, move to a big five publisher. And one of my strategies early on, and you know, which was very effective for me, was I went to a dozen conventions in 2012 before I was even published. I went to even more in 2013. And I just kind of like, because I was new to the industry, I just like came in hard at every single literary convention out there, WorldCon, World Fantasy. I was at ReaderCon. I, I, just, I just hit them all. You know, and because I came from... A, a day job background. I had the resources to just go to every single convention, go to, you know, pay, pay my own dime through yeah. that. And it, and it really helped. Networking is always a very intangible thing when it comes to publishing. You just don't know what you're going to get out of it. You don't know if it's worth all that, you know, what, what you're putting into it. And um, I have a very like direct correlation between that moment in 2012, 2013, when I was networking and actually getting something out of it. In 2013, World Fantasy was in Brighton. And I, I actually flew to the UK on my own dime just to go to World Fantasy because, you know, why not? And I became friends with Holly Black. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I mean, we just like, we hit it off, got drunk, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then a few years later, when um, when Saga, when Simon Schuster wanted to write the the Magnus Spain Eldest Curses books, um, they're looking for a co-writer with Cassie. But if, you, if anybody knows Cassie, Cassie has this like 
sisterhood of the traveling pants kind of like close-knit circle of friends that she, she works with but no, but never of anybody else hmm. so the magnus bane you know magnus bane is a 400 year old you know half asian warlock so they're kind of looking for someone who kind of like fit that role who has a good right with a sense of humor who, who can you know just kind of like check off all those boxes and when my name came up on the shortlist, uh, Cassie didn't know who I was. So she was like, you know, I don't know this guy. I don't know if I'm going to work with him. And Holly went to bat for me. You know, she's like, I know Wes. He can totally do this. And that's how I got that job. There, right there is like my story about, you know, networking can be very beneficial. What I take from this is I need to have an excuse now to get drunk with authors. <laughs> yes. Well, which is actually not that hard to do. No. We're all looking for that. Yeah, we're all, all, all on the booze, <laughs> most of us. That, that's funny that you mention it because that is. I was actually at that very same convention. I did the exact same thing you did, uh, and that's how I met and later signed with my agent. So lots of things happening oh, at fantastic. World Fantasy in Brighton. So I'm missing out. <laughs> anyway, go on. Well, that was a that was a fun that was a fun convention. I have to say. Yeah, it was. I liked it a lot. So how much do you want to say about co-writing? I believe you were calling her Cassie, but Cassandra Clare. It sounds like it was quite the process to get that job. Do you treat it as a job? Did it feel like a job? And and how how different was it than, you know, you're writing your own stuff? So, I mean, I mean there, there's a separate discussion we can have about tie-in. Co-writing with Cassie was extremely educational. Obviously, you know, she's one of the big authors out there, one of the biggest authors out mm-hmm. there. When it comes to her fan base and her world, she is the queen of her world. So I, I had a really, really rough entry into her fan base because they're extremely passionate. Yeah. <laughs> so so it, it was kind of a learning curve for that. And um, I, I got to say, I learned a lot about writing, a lot, learned a lot about world building, and I learned about, a lot about how to create intricate relationships within her world that kind of grab certain segments of, of, of fan bases that kind of like really make them super fan. So it, it, was, it was a great experience. One thing I was not really skilled at back then was writing romance or writing sex scene. And so um, The Eldest Curses is, you know, follows Magnus Bane and and this, uh, this Nephilim named Alec who's 19 years old. So there's definitely some factors in there that kind of have to be a little bit careful of as a paranormal gay romance. I'm a guy who never wrote romance before. So what happened was Diana Gabaldon took me under her wing and she kind of like sent me an email like, okay, Wes, here's some, here's some advice. Here's some tips. Here's how, here, let me send you my not quite, not yet published how to write romance book, how to write sex scene book. And so she sent me all that information and it was, it was, it was, like, a, it was like a fire hose of just like, you know, things to read, things to research. And at the very end, she was like, Wes, have you ever seen Yaoi? And I was like, no, what is that? And she goes, why don't you go look it up and watch it? It's um, Japanese anime. Um, is a, a Japanese erotic anime, gay anime meant for straight women. It's very specific. So, so, I, so I did look it up and, you know, I'm at home. I have a, I have a, you know, like, a, like an eighty-inch TV at the time, and I'm, wa- I'm watching it on YouTube, and I'm like, I'm, I'm like half covering my eyes the first time around, you know. <laughs> my wife comes home, and she's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" <laughs> you know, and I was like, "I don't know what's happening with my writing career anymore." <laughs> but I mean, it, it was, it was extremely educational. I, I learned to write like really good, you know, sex scenes. Just kind of like learning, not not about like you know the actual sex, but about the power dynamics, about how how, how communication works, about subtle subtle movements, and it was, it was really it was really great. And um, like I came out of the Eldest Curses books being you know pretty good at writing you know sex scenes. And my the next project I had after that was the Walking Dead. So Robert Kirkman asked me to write the Walking Dead set in Asia. So I wrote the Walking Dead Typhoon, and in that book. I put in a six-page sex scene. Not with the zombies, I hope. Hmm. What? No, not with zombies. It, 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 was, it, was, it was It was the survivors of, of okay. you know, of the apocalypse. And at one point, the editor, the editor was like, "Wes, I just read your draft. You have a six-page sex scene in here. It's really good, but this is The Walking Dead." You know. And I was like, "Look, man, what else are you gonna do in the middle of an apocalypse?" You know. And. It, and if you're a sex page, and she's like, it's going to have to be only a page and a half. And I'm like, oh, 
you're not you're not fucking right you know <laughs> is, is what i told her i think so I, th I think it ended up being like a page and a half but you know that that, that <laughs> was my foray into it and i mean i got it's, it's um it was a great experience yeah i, I really i really enjoyed it. i mean i don't I'm, I don't usually look for tie-in work. You know, tie-in work has its own limitations in terms of like who owns the mm -hmm. rights. You know, it's usually you you get an upfront fee. You don't you get very little if any royalty with it. So, um, but in in terms of The Walking Dead and uh, the Cassie books, I really really enjoyed that experience. Is that okay? I'm gonna ask yeah. something. Sorry, just no, off the cuff. That everyone always wonders. Do you not? worry about like family and friends reading it because even the the kind of spicy people in our discord are like oh no my don't don't let my family read my super sexy romantic novels <laughs> here's the thing about my family is they're very supportive okay. and they always buy like many copies of each of my books but i don't think they read any of my books yeah that's mine as well you know? <laughs> so so i'm always like whenever they always tell me that like oh yeah i got more copies of your book and i'm like well the important thing is that you bought it, yes. not that you read it, okay? That's, let's just be honest, okay? Yeah. I love oh, yeah. my readers, but the most important part is that they actually bought the book. Yeah, that's, that's true. I, my, I think my mother said to me very early on, like, oh, we're, we're very proud of you for writing this book, but I'm not gonna read it because I don't like books like this. It's like, yeah, that's fine. Please don't read it ever. <laughs> well, I mean, early on in my career, I, I was actually kind of angry about it because like my, like uh, Rowan Tan, the, the lead protagonist for The Lazar Tao, is named after my nephew. And then the, the Cameron, who is Rowan's son in, in that series, is, is named after his younger brother. So, because this is before I had kids, obviously. But so, like, so I, I'm like, I, you know, had this, I basically like named characters after family and friends. And, um, and, and he didn't read the book. <laughs> but then I, 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 got, I got over that. I got over that real quick. <laughs> yeah, I, I just wanted to know whether you got into IP work being both the Walking Dead book and the co-writing, did you get into that intentionally? Like, did you go to your agent and say, hey, I'm interested in, in doing uh, IP work and, and your agent then went and found that? Or did it just come about organically? How'd that happen? This is a really good segue. I got into IP work after my tenure at Tor Books. My time at Tor with the Time Salvager books was a little on the traumatic side. Oh boy. <laughs> I mean, look, not gonna lie, I kind of had PTSD after Tor. You know, You're not I mean, the first I, person it, to it, say that. I know, it, it, it was, it was um, very traumatic in, at some points. And like, I, I just, you know, I, I just wasn't ready to like write something original after that time period yeah and yeah. i was very fortunate that those projects kind of fell into my lap um, do you feel like going into that series at all and, and talking about it in, to the extent that you can all right yeah so i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna speak at a very high level tor picked up two uh picked up uh, signed me up for two books uh the time salvager books time salvager had a, a lot of hype you know leading up to its publication uh, michael bay had just optioned it and um what at that time, back in 2014, Transformers was huge, and you know, there was a lot of um, there just it just, uh, just uh, it had a lot of good things going for it at the time, and uh, I remember going leading up to a San Diego Comic Con. Um, I was on like, like several big panels with you know with some big authors. It was like a really it felt like a coming out moment for me at the time. And then at some point, there another author who was coming to San Diego Comic Con didn't like the panels they were on. So one of the publicists, one of the, the, the senior publicists, uh, basically swapped me out and put me in a diversity panel instead. Oh. And I complained. I was like, you know, I mean, it, 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 it felt to me exactly like it, it sounded. Yeah. It was the diversity corner, yeah. I will say this. I didn't handle it well, but also um, the publicist who kind of did that blacklisted me, okay, with, mm. with Intor. And, and this wasn't just like, oh, and we're not going to send you out. They're, they were like, we're going to basically zero out your, your publicity budget. Like, we're going to, and it felt like we're going to take your book. Wow, okay. Here's the, thing about, here's the thing about when you are at a publishing house, you know, your editor is supposed to be your champion. Your editor is the yes. person that kind of goes out there and like, you know, is like supports you, supports the book, helps sell the books to the sales team, the publicity team and all that. Mm -hmm. And... I just didn't feel like I had that support and my, you know, like my editor was like, you should apologize to the, to the publicist, which was correct because, you know, I, like, like I said, 
there were some things I didn't react well to when it happened. So I did apologize. They did the whole kowtow thing and it didn't really matter. So, so after those two books, I just, I came out of it just like kind of traumatized, you know, because like when you spend, you know, a year or two working on a book or you no, know, two books, you know, two, two and a half years. <laughs> and then it just, it doesn't kind of, it kind of falls to the crack like that. And because of reasons like that, it, it kind of hits you in a really hard and hard way. Yep. So I, I came out of my tour um, publishing experience just really, really just kind of like demoralized. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to publishing anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, it, it, it sucked. Yep. That, that, that was my tour experience. So, yeah. That, we, we talked about this a little bit before we went on air. But, yeah, that's, that's basically why this podcast exists, right? A lot of the, uh, obviously, I didn't have, you know, I wasn't shoved to a diversity panel because, well, for many reasons. <laughs> be, be, being shoved into a diversity panel just feels like there's no winning out of this. Like, yeah. I don't want to get shoved into a diversity panel. You don't want to get shoved in a diversity panel. Yeah. It's like, no, that's pretty shitty. Who wants to be put in a diversity yeah. panel? Yeah. Yep. I, I refuse to do them. I refuse to do the neurodiversity panels now. Like, no, no shade on people who choose to do them, but it's just like, it just feels like they're, put, they're giving you like a, a kind of. Yeah. Token effort yeah, almost. I will agree with that, but here's the thing also is it's, it has to be done. Somebody's got to put in the work. And then, and now, like, you know, because the argument is, well, like, white male authors shouldn't be, shouldn't be doing diversity panels, so they should be sitting and listening. But if they're sitting and listening, then who's going to be talking, you know? So if no one does them, then there's not going to be any diversity panels, and then those, those issues won't get raised. But if you do get put on them, then like you're like, well, I'm getting pigeonholed. It's a balance. Like I did do them when I was a little even newer than I am now. But I think my issues, I didn't want to be stuck doing nothing else. And um, there was a period of time where that was like kind of the only panels that basically the, the few cons I was going to were like really interested in me doing. And I was like, well, I don't, I, I want to just talk about like actual book things if I go sometimes. Right. <laughs> it's a balance. Anyway, go on. It is Sorry. a balance. Yeah. So I'm... I'm just curious, Wes, you were talking about the publicist essentially saying that they were going to tank your book and zero the resources. Did they actually say that? Or is that just the message you got via the actions they took or did not take on your behalf? I will say this. Um, Tor is a sieve when it comes to gossip. It was, it, it was uh, told to me through somebody who worked there mm. that this is what's happening. Mm. Yeah, and... I mean, this was also eight years ago, so it was, it, it was, it's honestly ancient history. I, I think, um, you know, that was a previous regime. I think, you know, David Pelais did, did, did an amazing job at Twitter these days, um, and they're putting out really great books. Yeah. So, you know, when we took out The Art of Prophecy, um, I, I spoke with them for, for extensively, not only about the book, but also about, you know, my previous experience. So, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm I don't know what your experience has been more recently, Scott, but uh, I feel like they've been doing a lot of good work. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, my understanding is that, yeah, they had a big overhaul and they changed it to be more of a kind of functioning company and a bit less of like a kingdom or something. I don't know. I don't work there, so I can't comment on that. I do think that Cameron's comment about it being a bit like a fiefdom or that different editors um, can still be a different experience and where you are with that particular editor and how much they like your book it can't it can matter um but obviously right. as i've said many times in this cast i get on really well with my editor so i never have complaints and i love the, the team that i meet yeah and i mean for for for, any, for anybody considering tour like the publicist and the editor are no longer there you know they, they've moved on so yeah i i should like i said ancient history <laughs> yeah i should i should say this we've talked about it at length on on other episodes but i think in my case it was a whole bunch of different factors that came together to not work so well in my favor, uh, especially having been on a small deal, a delayed small deal, etc. And I think the message is this happens at a lot of different publishers, and it really does depend on your relationship with your editor and your publisher. It's not, you know, it, we tend to talk a lot about one publisher simply because we, uh, Sunny and I are both with that publisher and we keep <laughs> finding uh, other connections to that publisher like you. And so we talk a lot about it. But yeah, I, I, I think this is a, an industry, industry wide phenomenon that you really have to pay attention oh, to. I mean, the, the truth is like publishing is an industry powered by passion. Yeah. 
okay? Because, because especially on, on the corporate side, I mean, no one's really doing it for the money. Yeah. And then on, on the author side, there are far better ways for all of us to make money than gamble with a publishing career. The, the ramp up it takes to kind of like get that first book published is, you know, is usually, you know, many, many years because you, it's that learning curve of learning how to write. It's that period of getting an agent. It's that getting the first book deal. Anybody who goes into publishing saying, I'm going to, I'm going to try to use this to make money. They're doing the wrong thing, man. <laughs> so because it's an industry on, on the author and editors on the publishing side, built by passion, then you are not as disconnected from the product as most industries would be. And because of that, then, you know, once you you have that subjective kind of mindset and everything, then, then that's when, you know, all the lines get blurred. Was there a point in your career where you kind of made that jump as well to like, this is a thing you're desperately doing against the clock, so your wife won't send you back to work, and it suddenly became lucrative and stable-ish. I think, well, two things. I think by the end of 2014, I, know, I, I basically recouped whatever income I had. I took a 95% pay cut mm. to become a full-time writer. Mm-hmm. I think by the end of 2014, maybe early 2015, I basically kind of like, my earning potential had like re- recovered that amount. Wow. And on top of that, I mean, that, that, that was the first indication Second indication was that I think six months after I became a full-time writer, like any knowledge I had of like IT, like went out one year, you know, it's like I had a finite amount of brain space and, and came writing. Like I couldn't even log into a Unix system after six months. I was like, I just, I forgot everything, you know? <laughs> and then that's when I realized that, Oh, uh, I am no longer employable, you know, especially in IT where like everything moves so quickly. That's true. It's, 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 it's an alien world to me now. So I, I have nothing to fall back on. No, that's that, you know, every person listening who starts out with a, a small ordeal or mid list is going to be like cheering for you right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's look, it's, that's fair. We, uh, we probably on the balance have a lot more horror stories than, than positive ones coming through though. Yeah. It's nice to hear the good ones. I mean, I, I, I get asked a lot about like, you know, what, what, what keeps you writing? And the answer I often give is that because the, the, the money's rarely there early on, even if you sign a really like, okay, let, let's say you sign a $300,000 deal. That's a significant deal. Um, that's for three books, assuming for three books, and that's $100,000 a book, which is very, very fair. You know, when upon signing, which is now broken up into four pieces, you're looking at $75,000, $75,000 to get you going. It's not going to get you very far in this day and age. The vast majority of writers still have day jobs. You know, the the career writer is, is a dying thing, and there's just, there's just very few of us. I, and there, there's I always say there's something that has there has to be an intangible variable, a tangible asset that keeps you going, that kind of feeds you while the money's not there. You know, it's the love of writing, it's the love of storytelling, it's, it's the dream, it's the craft, whatever it is. But that has to sustain you until you get to a level where suddenly, okay, now this is a career where I can kind of like go in full time. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, most writers don't get that far. You know, most writers don't quit that day job because that ramp up is so difficult. Like, like I said, I debuted in 2013. And I remember, uh, I think around 2016, 2017, I, I kind of like went back in time to like, you know, my debut year and I kind of tracked down all of my debut author friends that, you know, that I kind of like came out with. And I think it was something like 98% of my debut class no longer were writing. Yep. I have this theory that like the average, the average career for a writer is about five years, which incidentally is just long enough to complete a three book deal. Yep. I, I honestly believe that anybody has a book in them if they want to if they want to write it just a matter of grit and determination and most once you get one book out you could probably get three books out you could you could complete that deal but it takes a very specific kind of person to make a career out of it to kind of like you know not, not only continue writing those you know finishing that deal but having success to keep going and then having the the mental fortitude to kind of keep writing because it is a tough career i mean um I had a long discussion uh, just about six months ago, like, you know, after COVID, and it was like, there's a mental health cost to publishing that doesn't get spoken of enough, you know, in terms of how the industry works, how, 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 how we're compensated and how really 
we're exposed to the public when it comes to how reviews are done, um, how how little control we have over the product that we put out. Yep. I I think that's what most people don't understand, even getting into the industry. Wes, you said you didn't do a whole lot of research coming in. I thought I did a lot of research coming into the industry, but all of my research was on how to make it to the top, how to give myself the best chances of becoming uh, you know, a, a household name with my writing, et cetera. It wasn't a lot about like, what are the prospects? What probabilistically, how much money am I going to make at this, even if I make it into the industry? And that's what I, I hope people take away from this. Like Sunyi with her deal, the equivalent is kind of like, she's a first round draft pick in the NBA, right? <laughs> or take take your sports league of choice but that that means i hope listeners do (laughs) they get paid they get paid a lot of money and they you know even a first round draft pick doesn't doesn't always pan out but the difference between in the nba for example the difference between a first round and a second round draft pick is enormous in terms of the amount of money they make up front the amount uh the probability that they're going to stick around in the league that kind of thing and it's it's a a pretty good analogy simply because there is this funnel and people like Wes who climb their way out of the funnel <laughs> and and make a really good career out of an initial small deal are few and far between. Basically, I'm, 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 the, I'm the seventh round draft pick that, that somehow is still in the league after like 10 years. <laughs> yeah, you you are Jokic who, who became the MVP after being picked 40-something. Anyway, yeah, it, I mean... The odds are long. You can do it, but you better fucking love it if you're gonna if you're gonna put in the time and the effort and and like Wes said, expose yourself to the inevitable abuse, whether it's good natured or not. It feels like abuse at times uh, when you're putting your work in front of people, right? Did you ever feel? I, I mean, I'm sorry, go, ahead. Go, go ahead. I was gonna ask if you ever felt like oh. you were burning out just from the sheer volume of books you're putting out, the the different things you're doing to kind of build a career there oh I, I, i'm absolutely burned out. okay <laughs> absolutely burned out i mean so like so a- after the after the walking dead book i think um i mean so i had an idea for art of prophecy like a long time ago mm. but i just didn't have the i wasn't ready to write it i was also writing science fiction at the time so you know m- moving switching genres is a bigger deal than especially in traditional publishing than, than you think and i didn't think it was that big of a deal at the time you know it's, it's speculative fiction but I'm learning really. I'm learning now that like you know there are a lot of science fiction fans who don't read fantasy and vice versa. Mm. And so like you know when I when I, when I wrote the Art of Prophecy, like, like there were a surprising number of people who were like, I have no idea who this guy is. I've never heard of him, you know. And I'm not saying I'm a, I'm a big name or anything, but I just I just always assumed that speculative fiction was just just one like one pot, and we all read both. So I wrote the. I wrote the partial for the Art of Prophecy in 2019. Uh, For people who don't know what a partial is, it's, you know, instead of writing the whole damn book, you write, like, just a small segment of it, and um, then your your agent takes it out to to sell then. And if somebody buys it, then you finish it. In many cases, it's a great way to sell a book, but you have to be at a certain level to kind of pull that off. Yeah. And also... There's something to be said about after you sell the book, you actually have to finish it, which kind of sucks. But um, <laughs> in, in my case, so we, we sold The Art of Prophecy to Del Rey Books for a very healthy deal. It's for a major deal. Nice. And then COVID hit. So I, and like, you know, COVID kind of like, because before COVID, I had the house to myself, okay? And then we had, we had a kid in 2016, but generally it was like, you know, the house was mine. I worked whenever I wanted. Sometimes I worked 22 hours a day. And part of it is because, like, I'd be playing video games. I would write. You know, it's kind of whatever, whatever lifestyle I had, it was great. Hmm. And then COVID hit, and then everybody was in my house all the time. And then I had a baby. <laughs> I had another baby. So I had a COVID baby. So um, I managed to get The Art of Prophecy done in 2020. But then the sequel, The Art of Destiny, which is scheduled to come out in October of this year, just killed me and it's like i was able to kind of like get my brain together and and put out the art of prophecy but then my brain broke and i went from writing two books a year earlier on in my career to writing a book every two years Mm -hmm. and not only did art of destiny like kind of break my brain like 
I remember at one point, this is like my version of like the fourth level of hell, <laughs> is that I spent, I think, six months rewriting the first 20,000 words of that book over and over again. I just couldn't get past that section. It didn't make me happy. And you, I know you're supposed to just move on. That's what they're supposed to do, but I just couldn't do it. I rewrote it. I wrote it from different points of view. I like mixed things around. I threw it away. I brought it back. It and like it just that whole process just kind of like like I am so burned out right now, you know. And um, yeah. and, and and that's just the way it is. I mean, unfortunately, my my revenue streams are are, are rather diverse. Like I don't. You know, I actually have. A, I make money in other ways through publishing other than selling books. And that kind of saved me a little bit. You know, I, I sell a lot of TV options mm. and that, you know, that's, that's been a lifesaver for me. You don't have to give specific numbers, but I'm just curious if when you go into option negotiations, do you have like a minimum floor where you're like, I don't want to set less than this for an option. For, for options? Yeah. It depends. Okay. <laughs> do, I mean, look, do you have any other offers? Because it's kind of like a book deal. If you only have one offer on the table, you have one offer on the table. And the question is, do you feel like you'll get another offer later on or not? And then it also comes down to who are these who are these producers who want to option your book? Do they have a track record? Early on in my career, I went for the I went for the money because, you know, the, the odds of the odds of an option ever getting purchased is, is fairly low. Okay. At one point, you know, I think it was something like there's seven hundred projects in development in Hollywood, okay? They, they option a ton of stuff and like, you know, nine, 98% of it dies on the vine. I made that number up, but like the majority of it dies on the vine. So you know, go, go for the safe money. Um, and that's what I did early on in my career. Um, I think so far I've sold maybe seven options now Wow. since I began publishing, but later, um, after the initial, like, you know, Oh, you know, options are free money is I stopped going after the free money. And like I went after my, my calculus became what gives this project the best possible chance of success. So like for one of my projects, you know, um, the, the guy who made um, the matrix wanted to, to make a movie out of it. And that was really cool. I love the matrix. Matrix was, was very formative in, in my life. But then I did the math and I was like, well, okay, who, what in this television environment, you know, TV film environment, what gives this project the best possible chance of actually getting greenlit, of actually getting made? So I actually took a lot less money to go on the TV route with a producer who was making great things, like who had a great track record, had a couple shows already in, you know, in production right now, had some of my favorite shows in production at the time. So I knew, I knew he knew the voice. I knew he, he had, you know, he had a track record of getting things done. So I just took less money because I wanted it to get made. And I think that's kind of my calculus now is, you know, um, ad, ad, uh, options is a big portion of my revenue stream. But more importantly, I really want to have the right team assembled to back it up. Do you think it's really, do you think it's very crucial for authors to get out a lot of backlists? I mean, I know indies are always trying to get loads and loads of backlists, but I'm guessing having a lot of books out is basically the more you have, the better, I suppose, in some ways. I'll be honest. I don't love that business model of publishing as many. Me neither. <laughs> you know, as getting out as many books as possible. Look, it's, it is what it is. You know, when, when you're self-publishing, when you're in the indie market, that, that has proven to be a, a very successful strategy of just pushing out as many books as possible. And that's fair. That's, that's you no know, everybody in publishing does what they have to do to survive or, or to you know to make a living out of it it's just not for me i i'm not a fast writer i i like to kind of have my stories marinate and kind of like get a little deeper and really like think things through and kind of and, and sometimes you don't have that luxury when when you're writing when you're writing quickly you know and most of the time the, the people you hear about who write a book a month that's mostly in the romance sector. And there are advantages to writing in that sector that allows them to do that. You know, not saying they're good or bad authors. It's just a different style of, of storytelling. So so that is how that sector works. Um, traditional publishing can't do that because even if you could write that fast, um, your publisher isn't going to be pushing out more than a book a year for the most part, maybe two tops. And then, um, and they don't like it when you push out too many books, unless you go to several publishers. And there's your, you have other problems when you do that. 
So, so that's just it's a different business model. For what it's and honestly, with the with the advent of AI these days, yeah. look, I can absolutely see self publishing going from like a book a month model to like a book a week. Yep. You know, and there's there's only so much pressure for them to, to publish quickly that it's going to be irresistible at some point for someone to figure out. Okay, I I figured out how to like push out, you know, get, use Midjourney, use ChatGTP or whatever, and just start, start just pumping out books because it's a volumes game sometimes for that. Yep. I, yeah, I think I think it might already be happening. There were some editors in a, a group of men who were basically getting requests for on through like Fiverr of work places like that for people who've written AI novels. So it's like, you know, they're generating with AI, sending them to editors, wanting the editor to make it sound human, and they can throw it on Amazon. Uh, great times yeah. we live in. We're screwed, my friends. Go to your question, Scott. Yeah, so going back to the TV options, since you mentioned that they are a, a large portion of your revenue, and because it seems like you've been quite successful in signing them and getting TV options for, for your work. Is that, did those happen organically with inbound interest just because your books did well? Or is there something you or your agent have done to solicit those or, or make those happen? So I have a manager or, you know, uh, so in, in the film and TV side, you know, you, you'll usually have an agent, your literary agent will probably usually have a relationship with like one of the larger agencies like APA or CAA mm-hmm. And then uh, when a book comes out, they usually do, you know, do a submission. Hmm. And one thing that I learned is that they don't really care how well your book is doing, unless your book is doing really, really, really well. Yeah. Then, then that, 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 that gets on their radar. But generally, the book industry is so much smaller than the film industry that when, you know, if, if, if you come, if you sell, if you move a fair amount of books, they're like, yeah, that's, that's nice. Um, let's, let's see if you can make a story out of it. And it comes down to matchmaking, how um, if, if that agent or manager can can find a producer who will identify with that story. And and that's 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 kind of been my been my been my uh, secret sauce is that um, when you go with a large agency, they often just kind of they, they look at the book and they make out a huge submission list and they blast it out. And if anybody comes back, then they're like, okay, great, let's let's make a deal. More more recently these days is um, I you know, my manager curates who I speak with to the interested parties, and we kind of have these long we have these long meetings and conversations about what the, you know their vision of the book, where I am with the book, and like you know how and and also really if if you get along with these people, the, the best relationships I have with my options is like. I get along with the producer. I get along with the showrunner, and and we we shoot the shit, and we talk about like you know, like there, there's been times when like you know, the a showrunner would be like you know they want to do this, and I'm really pissed about this. Um, what do you think, West? And then I'd be like, well, let's look let's look at the variables, and let's look at the consequences of the variables. And if they want to make a decision, how does that affect the deal? How does that affect the story? And how does that affect the probability of this getting made? I mean, it's it's it becomes like. And here's the thing about options is, yes, you are the source. You are the source of the story. But once you option it out to somebody else, to, to you know, a studio or a production company, it is no longer solely your story. You know, adaptations are, are compromises. It's, it's shared storytelling. The, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Wheel of Time fan, and I'm enjoying the new season of Wheel of Time. But, and there's a lot of fans who are complaining that this is, this is so not like the story. And, and, you know, they're right. It is not like... Robert Jordan's 12 books or I'm sorry 13 13 books I don't know I stopped at number 11 or something I think he died around 11 or 12 (laughs) and there's 15 or something like that yeah I I think there's 13 I think but Brandon finished the last two or three yeah but um but I also recognize that there's no one no there's no way you can tell that story as a tv show or as a movie you know that the, the proper length for a movie, for, for a 90-minute movie, is a novella. So if you're doing a couple seasons of, of television, you, especially the real time, it's just so big and, big and expansive, you got to cut things out. Yeah. So I'm very forgiving of like adaptations because that's just the reality of the medium. You know, it's, it's a completely different medium and completely different factors that are associated with that medium you know, in terms of, like, um, for example, like we as authors can write whatever we want in our books, okay? But when you're a, a screenwriter, a very important variable is like, can you write a scene where two people are sitting at a table and having a discussion that moves the plot along? And you need those kind of scenes because they're cheap to make. 
you know suddenly budget is a variable you know suddenly so there's there's so many other factors involved that as a novelist we don't we don't ever have to worry about so when somebody else comes in and they want to adapt something you got to understand that they're considering variables that we don't even know exist you, you know, you've got a lot more option experience than either of us <laughs> Yeah, did did I understand correctly that you got connected with your manager um, through your literary agent then? And that submitting... That's correct. Yeah, and so submitting your book and, and the the rights to your book to a whole bunch of uh, different uh, players in the screenwriting space was part of your process from book one, from series one? Not from serious one. I, I think uh, my, my first option was Time's Albiger. Yeah, so a friend of the show slash a friend of yours, I think, noticed that you've got some significant marketing stuff going on uh, for your current series in between books one and two, which seems somewhat out of the ordinary, being that most publishers right put most of their most of their money and effort up front with book one. Uh, is there a particular reason for that you said you signed a major deal so that might be you know the only explanation we need but did you you know did you insist on that how did how did you make that happen and or have you have you seen good results from marketing during a, a series release versus um, just with the the first book i'm not gonna lie i have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> they they just sent us a something from instagram i think of of a blog tour you're doing for your book two in the war arts saga basically marketing for book two is nearly non-existent that's the received yeah. wisdom that we are told constantly if you're if you're writing series it's one reason why people dread them <laughs> i mean right. i don't disagree with that um I, I, like i said i'm not sure what marketing you're referring to so look I'll, i will say this i think del rey has done an amazing job in terms of thinking outside the box of being proactive of, of being just you know really really enthusiastic about you know about all aspects of production for for the book it's been a great experience of del rey uh art of prophecy has kind of like you know the, the editing editing was great i really pushed for my artist i pushed for my my map maker and you know and really i feel like it's been an incredible product. A funny thing about the art of prophecy: the the cover artist is a woman named Tran Nguyen. The map maker is a Korean woman named Sunga Park, and my editor's Indian. And then um, my the the production designer for the book is is, is Latino. So I it, it feels like everybody involved in major steps of the production was a woman of color, and a, a lot of it was just by design, and a lot of it was just you know just being serendipitous and but the thing is uh they solicited my feedback every step of the way so i really appreciated that i also saying that i also think that um the art of prophecy came out at a difficult time it came out you know on the tail end of the pandemic or actually in the heart of the pandemic and then it came out right when uh romanticy has just gotten huge <laughs> and it's eating everybody's mm -hmm. lunch so so because of that publishers may you know are, are focused now more on you know many romance and speculative fiction not everything's hitting now as for the book two marketing that you're talking about i'm not sure what you're talking about so if you have the insight let me look it up right it now it may have been a blog tour that you already did it, it looks like um just a, a blog tour for are you, oh, you know what? I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, are you talking about so? So what happened? What interestingly, um, so the art of prophecy came out in the UK. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. Press, and that came and that came out almost a year later uh, after art of prophecy came out in, yeah. in the US. And um, I mean, the thing, the thing about the UK publishers right now is like they're doing a lot of interesting things. They're doing more like special editions. So like the art of prophecy has like three special editions in the UK. And it's really cool. There's the Broken Bindings version, there's the Waterstones exclusive version, and there's the Daphne Press version. And so because so they're thinking a little bit more outside the box of how do you reach a larger audience with more specialty or more like um just just more just more creative ways to kind of like yeah. find readers. So they did a blog tour, they had they hired a PR company, and you know, that stuff pays dividends kind of like months down the line because eventually someone's going to see it or someone's going to find it 
and hopefully you create that kind of um, organic viral kind of uh, feedback loop that gets more readers. Yeah, been, we 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 love Daphne. We had her on um, for one episode, and just in general, I was this past couple of years really impressed with like with Daphne and Titan and Harper, and just in terms of the marketing that they're they're able to do and the the ways in which they're very creative and very. I guess aggressive in a good way, <laughs> getting getting their titles out there. Right, because like, the the UK market's you know five times smaller than the US market, and you know and the the UK publishing scene has always been kind of a kind of a quiet monster for a while. So it's it's nice to see some disruptors come in and just kind of like try new things, and you know and and change the model a little bit so that it's not just we're going to put a book out and then never hear from them ever. Again. So I've I've heard that I've heard that five times smaller market from you know several people i think sunyi included uh, and she lives in the uk so who am i to question is that is that statistic referring to just the population in general and and the theoretical reading target market or is that specific to sci-fi and fantasy because i feel like the just anecdotally based on who i see online and things feels like the sci-fi and fantasy community in the UK is really strong and they're almost trendsetters in some instances for that market in the US. It is based on population. We do have a strong community and I will say I think I don't know what it's at now but like during COVID the sci-fi and fantasy market in the UK grew by 22% I think it was in the Guardian which is Oh wow, 22%? If fucking insane. Wow. Um, and then it stayed strong. At least that's what they told us at the Harper summer party. <laughs> they had a lot of growth during 2020 and 2021, especially in sci-fi and fantasy. And then it's it's kind of kept, you know, it's not, not rocketing up anymore, but it's still strong. It's still steady. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the five times smaller market is, it's, it's just a number that gets tossed out. I don't, I don't actually have any set metrics for that. And um I think the U.S. is actually more than five times bigger than than, than the than the U.K. But I also do think that um, I mean I think I think the European market and the U.K. market have always been a little bit stronger in in, in fantasy than than the U.S. But you know I, I don't have any set metrics to kind of like correlate with that, right? But 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 saying that i feel like the the uk market has generally been more conservative historically really early on um i heard that like a uk editor said this of of an epic fantasy series set in asia and this this wasn't to me it was to somebody else but they were like it's kind of ethnic isn't it you know and that's oh, yeah God. but that's you know because um, the uk market has always been so focused on like you know i'm mean, I mean, fantasy in general has always been so like Medieval, still focused on like European, you know, a European setting, Arthurian legends, you know. So it was only really the past maybe five, six years that there's really been an, a, a real drive to, to see like not other voices, but like, like other settings, you know. There's so many more Asian settings now. There's so many more like, you know, Af African African settings for fantasy. And, and it's really becoming like a golden age for readers where now you can actually read stories that are set in places other than like where the, where like knights and princesses live and uh, you know if you still want the knights and princesses uh, they're they're there as well so they haven't gone away it's just now there's more <laughs> a lot more variety yeah, yeah. i mean look the, the majority of the stories are probably still set where those knights and princesses okay it's not like suddenly they're, they're, they're gonna stop publishing like you know stories set in medieval medieval germany but like it's just there's our options now and there and and people who yeah. and there are people who love that setting who just want to re read that setting and that's perfectly fine but for those who want to say okay let's let's see what other cultural flavors affect these kind of stories and you know they can do that too um well i'm, I'm out of questions scott so if you've got any more otherwise we can invite west to, to plug himself in his books <laughs> Where can people find you? Yeah, go ahead, Wes. You hit uh, everything that I was hoping to ask. So yeah. I don't know where I belong online anymore, to be honest. Um, I used to be big on big on Twitter or Shitter or now X, whatever it's called. I, I, I find myself <laughs> not there as often anymore, you know, for reasons. And, you know, I haven't gotten into Blue Sky yet that much. So I, I dabble in there once in a while. So I, I'm kind of taking a step back from social media in general, but um, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, at, Search for Wesley Chu. I don't know Chu. my Facebook pages, <laughs> to be honest. Search for Wesley Chu, right. My, my next book, The Art of Destiny, which is the book two of the War Arts Saga, 
is scheduled for publication in October 10th of this year. So that's what I'm working on right now. And then book three, hopefully, will be handed in by uh, late next year. And Wes died to write this book, so you guys better buy them. (laughs) The third book might kill me, I'm not going to (laughs) lie. You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.